0: You'll see them sometimes, young men in their pristine white shirts and skinny black ties. They travel in pairs, and genuinely, they're some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. They're easy to talk to, personable and attentive, but then one of them will say, we're missionaries, and suddenly you want to get away from them as quick as possible. Mormons are followers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, if you really want to be formal about it. They tend to be the butt of a lot of jokes, but did you know that Mormonism is the fastest growing religion in the world? Whatever they're doing, they're certainly doing what works. I'm Scott Parrish and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that delves into different cultures of the world throughout time while exploring different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I've got a great show in store for you, so make sure you stick around till the end to see what's cooking this week. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. Healthline states, according to a 2014 study, CBD may have anti-inflammatory effect on skin cells to reduce redness, swelling, pain, and redness from existing outbreaks, or irritation from skin conditions like eczema and psoriasis. So, when you need high-quality CBD, contact the guys that know, TheTailoredHemp.com. Now, On with the show. In 2011, the creators of the satirical TV show South Park wrote and composed a play. Just like the TV show, Matt Stone and Trey Parker wrote the play as a comedy based on dark, lewd, and condescending humor that centered on a stereotype, both true and false, of Mormons. It's called the Book of Mormon, and it's a catchy phrase uh, that... Their catchphrase is God's favorite musical. Now, if you've seen the play, you'll know that while it's indeed funny, the story also doesn't pull many punches against the Mormons or their beliefs. The play did well on Broadway and has won a multitude of awards in the U.S. and abroad, including a Tony Award for Best Musical and Best Original Score. But is it accurate? Stone and Parker are known for doing the research and the Mormon response to the play was measured and polite, basically saying the play was entertaining while warning against the danger of confusing reality with parody. In fact, after their success at the Tonys, the LDS church then started to advertise in the playbills at many of the musical's venues with slogans like, You've seen the play, now read the book, or The book is always better. Seems like a pretty good partnership, if you ask me. I bring up the play right away because it highlights a lot of what people actually think about Mormonism. Yes, it is true that Mormons don't drink coffee, tea, alcohol, smoke or do drugs, and it is true that the men hold most of the spiritual connection with Jesus and God. However, it is not true that Mormons practice polygamy. Although there are a few splinter groups such as the Community of Christ, shouldn't be categorized with Mormons that still practice it. But when it comes to gender and LGBT equality, they really still have some work to do. That's a topic for a different podcast though, so we're just going to skip it right now. Today, there are over 16 million members in the United States, Canada, Europe, Africa, the Philippines, and parts of Oceania. They are without a doubt one of the largest humanitarian efforts in the world. Traveling on missions to help communities by providing food and clothing while spreading the gospel and inviting non-Mormons, also known as Gentiles, to convert. I think the last part is really what discourages people from talking with missionaries. So let's talk about what it takes to actually be a missionary. Prospective missionaries must meet certain standards of worthiness, including regular church attendance, prayer, and adherence to the law of chastity and the word of wisdom which are confirmed by their bishop before applying. Once approved, each missionary receives a call to service, assigning him to one of the 405 LDS missions located throughout the world. Male missionaries must also be ordained in the Melchizedek Priesthood, held by all worthy adult male Mormons which grants them the authority to lead meetings, to bless and minister to the sick, and to ordain others into the priesthood. The lowest of the five offices within the priesthood is called an elder. Male missionaries go go by the title of elder and their last name. And after the mission, they may continue to rise through the ranks. Although women are not allowed to hold the priesthood, they can serve as missionaries. About 13% of LDS missionaries are young women. All missionaries spend several weeks at the missionary training center before they depart and those that need to learn a new language for their mission are encouraged to study by total immersion in order to become fluent as quickly as possible. It's pretty amazing. Missionaries have a very strict lifestyle following a daily schedule of prayer, scripture, study, and proselytizing in the community they are probably best known for going door to door visiting investigators or potential converts at home but the job also includes community service and most missionaries will try to be helpful to people they meet they really try to do good in their new communities as a part of practicing what they preach they're assigned to each other in pairs called companionships which are always the same gender companions not only live together for the duration of the mission but also accompany each other at all times except inside the bathroom. For the duration of the mission, they're forbidden from being alone with anyone of the opposite sex. They're also required to avoid worldly entertainment and media except to email their families and non-religious music and using slang words. Listen, nobody likes having someone else's beliefs thrust on them, but and missionaries certainly do that. But these missions last for two years, and these young men and women are sent away from home, often to foreign countries, and must fend for themselves. So maybe, maybe we can cut them some slack. As far as religions go, Mormonism is relatively young, which makes it that much more impressive that it's grown to the numbers that it has today. Everything started in 1823 with a man named Joseph Smith when he received what is described as an angelic vision in his western New York home. Joseph, born December 23, 1805, was one of 11 children. As a boy, he suffered from a crippling bone infection that forced him to use crutches for three years. His family, originally from Vermont, moved to Palmyra, New York in 1816, also known as the Year Without Summer due to this abnormal climate behavior that caused temperatures to drop. Back then, that particular region of New York was a hotbed of religious enthusiasm during the Second Great Awakening. That's a surge of Protestant spiritual movements that took place between 1817 and 1825. People were preaching all over the place. And some branches of Christianity that had begun to fade were revived, such as Methodism and Baptist. Hey man, I'm a Methodist, so I'm glad to hear that part. People were encouraged to forge a personal connection with God rather than relying on a minister. While Joseph's parents disagreed on religion, his family was caught up in the excitement of it all and even took part in some religious fold magic. That little bit is important, so let's not forget that. Table it for a second. Both his parents and his maternal grandfather reportedly had visions and dreams that they believed communicated messages from God. Smith said that although he had become concerned about the welfare of his soul, He was confused by the claims of competing religious denominations. (laughs) Aren't we all? Historians think that Joseph was sympathetic towards Methodism which, either way, he didn't know which church to join. All of that changed on a divine level, if you will. In 1820, while praying in in a wooded area near his home, God and Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph and told him his sins were forgiven, and all the contemporary churches had turned aside from the gospel. Smith said he recounted the experience to a preacher who dismissed the story with contempt, but the visions didn't stop there. By now, we're in 1823, and Joseph claimed to be visited by an angel in the night while praying. This angel's name was recorded as Moroni, and he told Joseph that there was a sacred book gold plates buried on a hill not far from his home. This hill would later be called, and I think I'm pronouncing it right here, Camora Hill. And whether or not the book was actually there or not is something I'm going to leave up to you, the listener. Joseph Smith wouldn't know either, not for four years anyway. You see, Joseph visited the hill multiple times and tried to find the golden plates, but each time he did, the angel would appear and stop him. Meanwhile, the Smith family faced financial hardship due in part to the death of Joseph's older brother Alvin, who had assumed the leadership role in the family. Family members supplemented their meager farm income by hiring out odd jobs and working as treasure seekers. Now, treasure seeker, that's a type of magical supernaturalism common during the period. Joseph used seer stones. For treasure hunting that's the small rocks that the lds church believed could deliver revelations and messages from god there's no good explanation for exactly how this works as far as i can tell if you stare at a seer stone long enough eventually you'll be struck with a knowledge that you didn't have before now i want everybody to know joseph smith was not a good treasure hunter and failed on the jobs where he used a seer stone in fact, he was arrested for it. He was accused of class-looking, which is a fancy way to say he was only pretending to find lost treasure. The details of the outcome that ordeal are unclear, but it didn't dissuade Joseph from using seer stones. He met his wife, Emma Hale, in 1827 while he was staying on the Hale property in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Initially, Emma's Father, Isaac Hale, disapproved of Joseph, saying his sworn testimony, saying in his sworn testimony that Joseph was an aloof young man who had no means of supporting his daughter. Isaac listed other reasons too, such as Joseph's lack of education and disrespect of his own father. But, you know, there's you get the idea. So Emma and Joseph eloped, and they returned to Palmera in the fall of 1827, where Joseph visited Mora Hill one last time. And guess what? This time he brought Emma with him. He found the golden plates and was once again instructed by the angel Moroni to translate them and spread the message. Oh, and Moroni also ordered Joseph to never show the gold plates to anyone. Seems rather convenient, huh? But I'm not judging. So moving on. Joseph did exactly as he was told and began translating the book. According to him, the book was written in Reformed Egyptian, a language that I will uh, gently explain, does not exist outside the Book of Mormon and is a religious record of the lost tribe of Israelites that somehow managed to migrate to America. Also included in the record is a story of how Jesus Christ himself also visited America after his resurrection and taught the word of God to Native Americans. Joseph Smith was the only one who could translate the gold plates and dictate the translations to his wife, Emma, who would write them down. It wasn't easy, though, and there were forces working against them. Joseph's friends and former treasure hunting associates felt that he had double-crossed them and taken these golden plates for themselves when they should have been joint property. After they ransacked Joseph and Emma's home in Palmyra, the couple was forced to flee back to Harmony, Pennsylvania which is now called Oakland. While there, the translation continued with the assistance of their better-off neighbor, Martin Harris. In the beginning, Harris was happy to scribe for Joseph Smith and believed that he was actually translating the Word of God. Harris even took a couple of characters from the gold plates that Joseph had written down on paper and took them to Charles Anthon, who was an American scholar. Initially, Hanthan verified that the characters were real, but after Harris told him that they were from the gold plates delivered by an angel, he quickly changed his mind. Harris soon began to doubt Joseph and persuaded him to let him take the only existing copy of the manuscript, which at that time was 116 pages long, and bring it to Palmera to show a few family members. Well, Harris lost the manuscript. And Joseph was devastated. On top of that, the angel Moroni returned and took the gold plates back as punishment for losing the manuscript. He got them back eventually, but it, you know, it took about three months. Joseph and Emma were also accused of being necromancers by the surrounding Methodist community and received very little assistance from the in laws living just down the road. In April 1829, he met Oliver Cowdery who replaced Harris as a scribe and resumed dictation. They worked full-time on the manuscript between April and early June 1829 and then moved to Fayette, New York, where they continued to work in the home of Oliver's friend, Peter Whitmer. As more of the gold plates were translated, it became known that baptism and tithes were part of the true church. So Joseph and Oliver baptized each other and began asking for money from their friends and family. Although Smith had previously refused to show the plates to anyone, he told Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer, that's Peter's son, that they would be allowed to see them. These men, known collectively as the Three Witnesses, signed a statement stating that they had been shown the gold plates by an angel and that the voice of God had confirmed the truth of their translation. Later, a group of eight witnesses comprised of male members of the Whitmer and Smith families, issued a statement they had been shown the golden plates by Joseph. According to Joseph, the angel Moroni took back the plates once he finished using them. The completed work, titled The Book of Mormon, was published in Palmyra on March 26, 1830, by printer E. B. Brandon. Soon after, on April 6, 1830, Joseph and his followers formally organized the Church of Christ, and small branches were established in Palmyra, Fayette, and Colesville, New York. The Book of Mormon brought Joseph Smith regional notoriety and opposition from those who remembered him as a disgraceful treasure hunter. After Calvary baptized several new church members, the Mormons received threats of mob violence, before Joseph could confirm the newly baptized members, he was arrested and brought to trial as a disorderly person. He was acquitted, but soon both him and Cowdery fled and fled to Cosville to escape the gathering mob. In probable reference to this period of flight, Joseph said that the disciples Peter, James, and John had appeared to him and had ordained him in Cowdery into a higher priesthood. They were trying to go to Missouri, where they believed that they would find New Jerusalem, but along the way, they were approached by another man, Sidney Rigdon, in Ohio. Rigdon was also the leader of another movement, the Campbellite Restoration, a subsect of the Restoration Movement that wanted to restore primitive Christianity. Rigdon and his followers all converted to Mormonism, more than doubling the size of the church. Rigdon also became Joseph's primary assistant, replacing Cowdery after he tried to undermine Joseph's uh, prophetic authority. Basically, Cowdery started to claim that he could also get visions and revelations from God and the angels, and I suppose Joseph just didn't like that, since shortly after, he dictated a revelation that clarified his office as prophet and apostle, and which declared that only he held the ability to give doctrine and scripture for the entire church. Cowdery and a few other members were sent off to find New Jerusalem and try to convert any Native Americans that they came across. In the meantime, Smith and the remaining church settled in Kirtland, Ohio, a place where Smith believed to be the eastern boundary of the New Holy Land. Converts poured into Kirtland and by the summer of 1835, there were 1,500 to 2,000 Mormons in the vicinity many of them expecting Smith to lead them shortly to the Millennial Kingdom. The Millennial Kingdom. It's a utopia said to appear before the second coming of Christ to America. Though his mission to the Indians had been a failure, Cowdery reported that he had found the site of New Jerusalem in Jackson County, Missouri. After Smith visited in July 1831, he agreed pronouncing the frontier hamlet of Independence the center place of Zion. Rigdon, however, disapproved, and for most of the 1830s, the church remained divided between Ohio and Missouri. Smith continued to live in Ohio, but visited Missouri again in early 1832 to prevent a rebellion of prominent church members who believed the church in Missouri was being neglected. Smith's trip also hastened, by an angry mob in Ohio residents. This seems to be a reoccurring theme in Joseph Smith's life. Okay, so the mob caught him. They beat Smith and Rigdon unconscious. They tarred and feathered him and left them for dead. The Mormons in Missouri weren't having much luck either. The residents of Jackson County resented them for political and religious reasons. Tension increased until July, 1833 when non-Mormons forcibly evicted the Mormons and destroyed their property. Smith advised them to um, bear the violence patiently until after they were attacked multiple times, after which they could fight back. After armed bands exchanged fire, killing one Mormon and two non-Mormons, the old settlers rudely expelled the Mormons from the, country, from the county. After a few years of trying to and failing to reclaim their community in Missouri, some failed excursions to other cities to try and garner some more money for the construction projects that would be abandoned, a dead-end project of trying to create their own money, and some accusations of infidelity on Joseph Smith's account, the Church of Christ found themselves in massive debt and doubting the leadership of their church. Many defected from the church, including a lot of Smith's closest advisors. It wasn't long after that that the community in Kirtland also collapsed in 1838, changing the name of the Church of Christ to the Church of the Latter-day Saint. Joseph and his followers fled to Missouri, but they wouldn't be going back to Jackson County. This time, they settled in the Far West, which was once again declared the New Jerusalem, and construction on the new temple uh, began once again. During this time, the church council expelled many of the oldest and most prominent leaders of the church, including John Whitmer, David Whitmer, and Oliver Cowdery. Smith explicitly approved of the expulsion of these men, who were known to be collectively as dissenters. Political and religious differences between old uh, Missourians and newly arrived Mormon settlers provoked tensions between the two groups, and much as they had years earlier in Jackson County, Trouble didn't abate. By this time, Smith's experiences with mob violence led him to believe that his faith's survival required great militancy against anti Mormons. Around June 1838, recent convert Samson Navard formed a, a covert organization called the Danites. To, and the Danites, their, their job was to intimidate Mormon dissenters and oppose anti Mormon militia units. Though it's unclear how much Smith knew about the Danites' activities, he clearly approved of those which he, he did know. After Rigdon delivered a sermon that implied the sinners had no place in Mormon community, the Danites forcibly expelled them from the, from the county. In a speech given at the town's Fourth of July celebration, Rigdon declared that Mormons would no longer tolerate persecution by the Missourians and spoke of a war of extermination if Mormons were attacked. Smith implicitly endorsed this speech, and many non-Mormons understood it to be a thinly veiled threat. They unleashed a flood of anti-Mormon rhetoric in newspapers and in stump speeches given during the 1838 election campaign. On August 6, 1838, non-Mormons in Gallatin tried to prevent Mormons from voting. And the Election Day scuffles initiated the 1838 Mormon War. (laughs) The Mormon War, wow. Now, non Mormon vigilantes raided and burned Mormon farms, while Danites and other Mormons pillaged non Mormon towns. In the Battle of Crooked River, a group of Mormons attacked the Missouri State Militia, mistakenly believing them to be anti Mormon vigilantes. Governor Lilburn Boggs then ordered that the Mormons be exterminated or driven from the state. That's a lot of extermination talk going on, you know. On October 30, a party of Missourians surprised and killed 17 Mormons in the Hans Mill Massacre. The following day, the Latter-day Saints surrendered to 2,500 state troops and agreed to forfeit their property and leave the state. Smith was immediately brought before a military court accused of treason and sentenced to be executed the next morning. Alexander Doniphan, who was Smith's former attorney and a brigadier general in the Missouri militia, refused to carry out the order. Smith was then sent to a state court for a preliminary hearing where several of his former allies testified against him. Smith and five others, including Rigdon, were charged with overt acts of treason and transferred to a jail in Liberty, Missouri, to await trial. Smith's months in prison with an ill and whining Rigdon strained their relationship. Meanwhile, Brigham Young, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, rose to prominence when he organized the move of about 14,000 Mormon refugees to Illinois in eastern Iowa. Smith bore his imprisonment stoically. Understanding that he was effectively on trial before his own people, many of whom considered him a fallen prophet, he wrote a personal defense and an apology for the activities of the Danites. And I quote, The keys of the kingdom have not been taken away from us. Though he directed his followers to collect and publish the stories of persecution, he also urged them to moderate their antagonism toward the non Mormons. On April 6, 1839, after a grand jury hearing in Davis County, Smith and his companions escaped custody almost certainly with the with the help of some sheriffs and guards. They caught up with young and joined them on the trek to, to Illinois. At first, life in Illinois wasn't terrible. Illinois accepted Mormon refugees who gathered along the banks of the Mississippi River where Smith purchased high-priced swampy woodland. I think that, that part, I think that part of that reason was because they felt bad for the outcast after what happened in Hans Mill. In um, 1839, they settled in Novu, Illinois. Vacant land would soon become a city centered around Mormon Temple, It wouldn't be completed until after Joseph Smith's death. Now here's a fun fact for you. You can still visit the temple today. Smith also attracted a few wealthy and influential converts, including John C. Bennett, the Illinois quartermaster general. Bennett used his connections in the Illinois legislature to obtain an unusually liberal charter for the new city. Though Mormon authorities controlled Novus civil government the, the city promised an unusually liberal guarantee of religious freedom the charter was also authorized the Novu legion that that was an autonomous military whose actions were limited only by state and federal constitutions lieutenant general smith now man that's some title huh and what a promotion and major general bennett became its commanders, thereby controlling, by far, the largest body of armed men in Illinois. Smith made Bennett assistant president of the church, and Bennett was elected Novus first mayor. For the next couple of years, from 1840 to 1842, Smith brought forth a plethora of new revelations, one of which was the doctrine of plural marriages, by mid-1842. Popular opinion had turned against Mormons after an unknown assailant shot and wounded Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs in May 1842. Man, Boggs is all over this, isn't he? So, anti-Mormons circulated rumors that Smith's bodyguard, Porter Rockwell, was the shooter. Though the evidence was circumstantial, Boggs ordered Smith's extradition, and certain he would be killed if he ever returned to Missouri. Smith went through hiding twice during the next five months, before the U.S. District Attorney for Illinois argued that Smith's extradition to Missouri would be unconstitutional. In June 1843, enemies of Smith convinced a reluctant Illinois Governor, Thomas Ford, to extradite Smith to Missouri on an old charge of treason. Two law officers arrested Smith, but were intercepted by a party of Mormons before they could reach Missouri. Smith was then released on a writ of habeas corpus from the Novu Municipal Court. That's good to know people, huh? (laughs) While this uh, ended the Missourians' attempts at extradition, it caused a significant political fallout in Illinois. By early 1844, a rift developed between Smith and half a dozen of his closest associates, and thus began Smith's downfall. Wow, I mean, you know, he really lasted a long time as far as I'm concerned. He went through a lot of strife before this really began to happen. It all started with this newspaper run by his dissenters called the Novu Expos- Expositor. On June 7, the distance published the first and only issue of the Novu Expositor calling for reform within the church and appealing to the political views of the county's other faiths, as well as those of former Mormons. The paper decries Smith's new doctrines of many gods, alludes to Smith's theocratic aspirations, and called for a repeal of the Novu City Charter. It also attacked Smith's practice of polygamy, implying that Smith was using religion as a pretext to draw unassuming women to Novu in order to seduce them and to marry them, fearing the newspaper would bring the countryside down on the Mormons the Novo City Council declared that the expositor was a public nuisance and ordered the Novu Legion to destroy the press. It was an exciting place to live, to say the least. So Smith, who feared another mob attack, supported the action, not realizing that destroying the newspaper was more likely to incite an attack than, the, than any other libel. Destruction of the newspaper provoked a strident call to arms from, the, from Thomas C. Sharp, the editor, of the Warsaw Signal and longtime critic of Smith, fearing an uprising, Smith mobilized the Novu Legion on June 18 and declared martial law. Officials in Carthage responded by mobilizing their small detachment of state militia, and Governor Thomas Ford appeared, threatening to raise a larger militia unless Smith and the Novu City Council surrendered themselves. Now, Smith initially fled across the Mississippi River but shortly returned and surrendered to Ford. On June 23rd, Smith and his brother Hiram rode to, wrote to Carthage to stand trial for inciting the riot. Once Smiths were in custody, the charges were increased to treason, preventing them from posting bail. On June 27th, 1844, an armed mob with blackened faces stormed Carthage jail where Joseph and Hiram were being held. Hiram, who was trying to secure the door, was killed instantly with a shot to the face. Smith fired three shots from a pepper box pistol that his friend Cyrus Wheelock had lent him, wounding three men before he sprang to the before he sprang through the window. Well, it's like an action movie, man. Well I gotta say this about the guy. He was a good shot. Three shots, three guys. So, he was shot multiple times before falling out the window and crying, Oh Lord, my God! He died shortly after hitting the ground and was shot several more times before the mob dispersed. I don't mean to laugh. I mean, this is crazy. All the stuff that just has happened to Smith up to this point. Five men were later tried for Smith's murder and were all acquitted. Smith was buried in Novo and is interred there in the Smith family cemetery. After his death, non-Mormon newspapers were almost unanimous in portraying Smith as a religious fanatic. Conversely, within Mormonism, Smith is remembered first and foremost as a prophet martyred to seal the testimony of his faith. In months following Smith's murder, it was not immediately clear who would lead the church. His brother Hiram who was assistant president of the church and, as such, would have been Smith's natural successor, had died with him. Another Smith brother, who may have been presumed successor, should both Hiram and Joseph die, died a month later. The the brother's name was Samuel. There were a few prospective candidates, mostly Sidney Rigdon and Brigham Young in general meeting of the church at Novu on august 8, forty four, Rigdon and Young presented their respective cases. As the only surviving member of the first presidency, Rigdon argued that he should be made guardian of the church. Young argued that without Smith there, there was no presiding authority. Therefore, he proposed that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, a governing body of the church that Young headed be constituted as the new presiding authority. A vote of, the congregation, oh, uh, vote of the congregation overwhelmingly supported Young's proposal, said to have been caused by Brigham briefly yet miraculously having the voice and continence of Joseph Smith. Soon after, Rigdon left Novu and established his own church organization in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The conflict between Mormons and non-Mormons escalated into what was sometimes called the Mormon War of Illinois. Latter-day Saints in outlying areas were driven from their homes and gathered to Novo for protection. The Illinois state legislature voted to revoke Novo's charter and the city began to operate extra-legally. About this time, Novo's population peaked. It may have been as many as 12,000 inhabitants, rivaling Chicago, Illinois, who in 1845 had a population of 15,000, including its suburbs. However, by the end of 1845, it became clear that no peace was possible, and Young and the Twelve negotiated a truce so that the Latter-day Saints could prepare to abandon the city. The winter of 1845 and 1846 saw the enormous preparations of the Mormon exodus across the Great Plains. The large group of Latter-day Saints followed nine of the Twelve Apostles West, establishing a way station at Winter Quarters, Nebraska in 1846 and entered Salt Lake Valley in 1847. Having planted this initial colony in the Great Basin, Young returned to the winter quarters and in December 1847 reorganized his faction of church and established himself as the head of the new presidency. Young's organization today, the LDS Church, is headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. And on a personal note, I've got to tell you, I've been to Salt Lake. That area is beautiful and it's worth visiting. So that's where they stayed and that's where they remained till today. Brigham Young University was established in 1875, sponsored by the LDS Church and a main source of the higher education of many Mormons today. An education of BYU is less expensive than a similarly private university since a significant portion of the cost of operating the university is subsidized by the church's tithing funds. In general, Mormons are raised with an incredible sense of moral and strong work ethic. So much so that the CIA even had a program for Mormon recruitment. Listen to what I said about that. The CIA specifically wanted Mormon recruits. So the next time you see a couple of missionaries, sit down with them, have a nice chat. They're super nice. I promise. And... I really expect that you'll probably learn something. When speaking about missionaries, they probably talk about saving your immortal soul. But what exactly does that mean? Well, while there are different different degrees of orthodoxy within the Mormon faith, Mormons commonly believe that death is a separation of the soul from the body. Many Mormons believe that upon death, the soul is judged and based on the soul's general goodness. Is sent to either this spirit paradise or this spirit prison. When Christ returns to earth, souls are again judged and sent either to the celestial kingdom, which is like the highest heaven for those that are honored with all the covenants of the church and were valiant in their testimony of Jesus Christ and all the children who died before the age of eight. The terrestrial kingdom were for those who led an honorable life but were not valiant in their testimony of Jesus in the terrestrial kingdom for those who refuse to repent. So, as far as funerals go, they aren't too much different than any other Christian funeral. When a Mormon dies, a bishop should be contacted to make arrangements for the funeral and help with finding a funeral home. Organ donation is accepted among the Mormon beliefs and so that that can be taken care of at this point in time. The bishop will notify the Melchizedek priesthood leader, who is a high level priest, who will take over supporting the family of the deceased. The body is dressed in what's called temple clothing all white formal clothing, traditionally a dress for women, shirt, pants, and tie for men. The body must be dressed by a family member of the same gender. If no one is available, an endowed member who is also the same gender as the deceased will be allowed to do it. It's common to have a brief open casket viewing before the funeral service. The viewing is often held at the same location that the funeral service will be held, but may also take place at a mortuary or a funeral home. The viewing is usually open to all mourners, though there is generally a time set aside at the end for the viewing of only family and members. After the viewing and before the funeral service, the family may ask the bishop to offer a prayer for the family, after which the family closes the casket. The service is held at an LDS church led by a bishop or other kind of affiliated church leader. The Mormon funeral is a religious service and offers an opportunity for the church to teach the gospel. As Mormons believe in life after death, funeral services are generally serious about sl- laboratory events the service will often contain songs hymns prayers tributes to the person who died and the sermon while family members have the option of speaking at the funeral they are not required to do so after the funeral the bishop or a member of that bishop inner circle will accompany the family to the cemetery for the fun- for the burial a Melchizedek priesthood holder may dedicate the grave or offer a graveside prayer. After the interment. there is also a reception for the family and close friends, though the larger community may be invited as well. They all sit down to eat what's called a mercy meal provided by the church. The reception offers mourners an opportunity to connect with each other and remember the life of the deceased. These funerals bring the family and community together with good wishes and also with good food. So now, let's get to my favorite part of the show, funeral potatoes. I can tell you in Tennessee, I never called them funeral potatoes, though I look back and I can see where they were at every funeral that I attended. And a side note, we Southerners make a feast for just about any reason. This cheesy potato casserole, as we called them, was a staple for Sunday dinners, holiday gatherings, and cookouts. This is a great bring-a-dish. Here's what you're gonna need. Four cups of shredded potatoes, one medium chopped white onion, three cloves chopped garlic, 16 ounces shredded cheddar cheese, one can of 22.6 ounce cream of chicken soup, one cup sour cream, two cups crushed cornflake cereal, nine tablespoons of butter divided, and a little bit of oil. One tablespoon of garlic powder, salt and pepper to taste before you start go ahead and preheat your oven to 350 degrees let's talk about how to make the hash browns from scratch because that's the base of this dish take about a third of your shredded potatoes and put them in a dish towel we're going to remove as much water from them as we can twist the towel as tight as you can and once you feel that you squeezed out as much liquid as you can then do it again to the next batch now Heat two tablespoons of oil in a large, and when I say large, I mean large, because you're going to have to put a lot of food in there, into a large frying pan over medium-high heat. Add the onion and the garlic and cook until it's fragrant. Add the potatoes in batches if you, like you did when you squeezed them, if your pan's not big enough for all, all of the potatoes at once. And a tablespoon of butter every time that you add a batch. So what I'm saying is if you add all the potatoes, add all the butter. If you add a third of the potatoes, add one tablespoon of butter. The idea is to get the potatoes crunchy on the bottom before you add more. You want some soft and some crunchy. If you don't have a large enough frying pan like I said earlier, just do it in batches. When done, put the potatoes in a nine by 13 baking pan, spread them out evenly so they cover the entire bottom of the pan. Next, in a mixing bowl, combine the chicken soup, cheese, sour cream, salt, pepper, and powdered garlic. Spread the cheese evenly over the potatoes, melt six tablespoons of butter, and mix in with the cornflakes. Now, I know you haven't tried, if you haven't tried cornflakes as a topping, you're scratching your head and you're really wondering how big a redneck I am. Well, I am a Southern Country boy, so you can call me but what you want, but I'm telling you, this works. Use the cornflakes. Spread the cornflakes over the top of the pan and try to make sure that the cornflakes cover the entire rest of the dish. Now bake for 60 minutes until the, or until the top is golden brown. You may even see some of the casserole bubble on the sides. When that piping hot goodness comes out of the oven, you'll be glad. After cooking, let it set for about 10 or 15 minutes before serving. I'm your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you enjoyed this episode diving into the conflicting and tumultuous story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout out to Gatalina 1552 Will Hoff, Grumpy the Curmudgeon Bobby, and Braylon Photos. Also, I'd like to give a little shout out to my Aunt Sheila because she's in the LDS. And Aunt Sheila, I love you. Your support drives the show, and we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear about. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating. It really matters. And until next time, stay lively.